Hello, Monetization Nation. Infolinks reported that 86% of consumers suffer from banner blindness. This means that they consciously or subconsciously ignore information that looks like an advertising banner, even if it contains information they're looking for. Furthermore, according to Statista, a study on ad blocker usage in the United States found that 45% of respondents aged 15 to 25 said they used an ad blocker. The same was true for 42% of respondents between 26 and 33 and respondents between 46 and 55. Why are so many businesses focusing their advertising campaigns around advertising banners when the vast majority of internet users are ignoring or blocking those advertising banners? With the proliferation of ad blockers and users ignoring ads online, it is becoming harder for advertisers to get their message to potential customers. One way to get around ad blockers and banner blindness is through native advertising. According to IHS, native ads are 60% more engaging and three times more memorable than traditional advertising. Todd Handy is the Chief Digital Officer at Beasley Media Group, which runs 65 radio stations in 15 markets. Todd is a native advertising expert who will share his insights in today's episode. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. I'm joined with me today by Todd Handy. Uh, Todd is the Chief Di Digital Officer for Beasley Media Group, um, which is an organization that runs 65 uh, radio stations across the country. And uh, he helps with the uh, to monetize uh, those stations through uh, all of the current digital trends, including advertising and native advertising and, and a variety of other methods. Uh, he, he worked together with me at Deseret Digital Media. Deseret Digital Media operates the leading newspaper and TV station and radio station in, in the Utah market. And uh, it's part of some amazing uh, transformational things there and over four, 350 million uh, page views a month there. Uh, he's worked at a variety of other places. He's been uh, early in his career. He worked at AOL and I look forward to asking him some questions about that. He also worked as the CEO of Intermountain Hearing Center. So we're going to hear about his entrepreneurial journey today and learn from his wisdom and success in monetizing digital ventures. So thanks for joining us today. Tell me something interesting about you. Well, it's it's that's an easy one because because uh, I'm on video and you can see it over my shoulder here. Um, I am an endurance athlete. Uh, I like to uh, ride road cycling, mountain biking, and running. Uh, I live in Utah, so we can't ride our bikes year round. So from April to October, I'm riding a bike. Uh, my passion is road cycling, um, but I love to do a lot of mountain biking as well. And then when the snow falls, uh, we can't ride our bikes anymore. And so I run. I don't enjoy running on a treadmill. I actually run outdoors. My gear gets me down to zero. I can run to zero degrees and, and still be okay. Anything less than that, I think I'll stay home. So I guess that's one of the interesting things about me is that I love to do endurance uh, events. And here in Utah, one of the most well-known is called uh, Lodija. It's Logan to Jackson. It's a 206-mile one day race. And uh, to my credit, I've, uh, I've raced that 11 times straight. Um, 
and it is an insane race. It is, it is, it is not yes. the same part. <laughs> it so takes no dedication, no doubt. I'm going to tell a little bit of why that's such a difficult race. Uh, well, it, uh, 206 miles uh, in in uh, in one day, of course, um, is not easy. But it covers miles. yeah. What's that? Yeah, it covers three mountain pa- uh, three mountain passes, um, some of which have uh, two of which have a, a pretty big uh, grade, but uh, it's over 10,000 feet of climb uh, as well. And there are at least a couple places there where it's 90% of the time when you're racing in that area year to year it's a headwind, which is just demoralizing. So it's, it's just a well-known race. It's kind of one of those where if you're a cyclist in Utah and you meet another cyclist, it's kind of like one of the first things you say is, Hey, have you done motor jet? Um, and so to be able to say I've done 11 times in a row is for me, a, a pretty cool thing for anyone else. It's like, eh, not that big. And the reason it's called Lodi is it's from Logan, Utah, which is where Utah state is, yep. um, up to Jackson, Wyoming. Jackson hole. Yep. That's right. There's a tectonic shift away from advertising banners. The vast majority of internet users today are using ad blockers. And then the vast majority of internet users today have what's called banner blindness. And you know this better than I do, where they just ignore those traditional looking advertising spots. And so great advertisers today that are doing well are finding ways to move from ad banners and, and ad banners are still effective. They're just getting less and less effective. Mm-hmm. And they're moving to, to different forms of advertising that don't look like advertising banners that are integrated within the experience of the website. They're sponsored content and, and other types of, of native advertising. So I know you're an expert at this. You, you led the rollout of this at Desert Digital Media when I was there. And I would love for maybe you to kind of explain to us about native advertising and maybe share with us your, any secrets or stories or experiences you have with what works and doesn't work with, with native advertising. Sure, no, that's, you said it really well, which is banner blindness happens, uh, ad blocking happens, and it all happens because in many ways we've actually abused the user. It's listener on radio, it's the viewer on TV, it's the reader on newspaper, whatever. Let's call it a user. We've abused them because we put too much of an ad load in there. And it's not necessarily that we wanted to abuse them, it's that the economics of the media have changed such that we were getting paid less for the media for one reason or another, maybe subscriptions went down or you know costs went up or whatever. And so we needed to make more money or maybe we just got greedy and needed to make more money anyway or wanted to make more money. So we picked up the ad load. Well, by doing that, users said, okay, that's it, I'm done. With traditional media, there were only a couple of things you could do. Well, you could turn it off or you could go to a competitor or you could pay for it. But the truth is most folks don't want to pay for advertise or for media. They are fine with ad support. Think about all the magazines that we've bought over the years. When I was a kid, I subscribed to Sports Illustrated. So I paid for a subscription, yet I still had a whole bunch of ads in there. So I was paying for media as a subscription that also had the ads in there. So we've created this situation for ourselves. And from a digital standpoint, it's probably been worse than any other because digital doesn't have the same limitations. There's only so many pages of a newspaper, so many pages of a magazine. You only get 30 minutes for the six o'clock news on and on and on. So most of that constraint was there. But with digital, you don't have that constraint anymore because 
you can create as many pages as you want. As more people come and you send folks from uh, social media, you don't have those constraints. And so I think that caused us to be a little cavalier and to maybe abuse the user. So, And I think one of the key points that I want to bring out of what you said is, is the concept of value. And I think one of the differences is ad banners are a business who is buying a whole bunch of reach and then telling the world, hey, come click on my banner, come buy our product, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where the sponsored content is focused on providing value first as the first step in the process. And then as we provide value, there's a couple of things that happen there. There's, as we provide value, it, it creates that reciprocity where we've done something for them and they're a little bit more open to listening to us, number one. Number two is it provides a little bit of trust. As we got in and provided some information on a topic they care about, we've become more credible on that topic and they may be more willing to you know, consider using our services related to that topic. So yeah. I think there's a lot of advantages. Where I really became a, a sold convert of native advertising was when I saw the shift to mobile. And I shot, saw how horrible the click-through rates were for ad banners on mobile. Um, and was trying to figure out how to solve that on mobile. And I realized that the way to do that was to put the ads within the content so they weren't perceived as ads. And then people would consume the advertising and be exposed to the advertiser through their content stream instead of having to try to do it through ineffective teeny little mobile ads. Yep, yep. So a, a couple of examples that, that maybe uh, will fit well, and, and you, you would remember these examples as well because we were both together at, at Desert Digital Media. We, once we really got our sponsored content product launched, we really started finding some good ways to do these. And so we had one that was 10 ways to know that you're a Utah driver. Okay. It was, you know, they don't blink before they turn. They drive really fast in this lane. All those things that we all complain about. And by the way, you could use that same article in all 50 states because every state has their, here are the 10 things we hate about our drivers. Wow. That one that we did actually happened to be sponsored by a PI attorney, personal injury attorney. None of us ever need a PI attorney until we need a PI attorney. So a direct response ad from a PI attorney is terrible, right? Click here to talk to me about your car accident. Well, it only happens if I happen to have had a car accident right now and that ad is in front of me. But the, the nice thing about that for a PI attorney is a PI attorney is always branding. They're always trying to get you to remember one call, that's all, or this or that or whatever. Well, that 10 ways to tell you're a Utah driver actually went viral for us. Not because people shared it because of the PI attorney, they shared it because hey, look at all of my friends who also complain about Utah drivers. And then someone sent it to their friend in California and said, hey, you think California drivers, what about this? It went viral because of the content and the PI attorney went along for the ride. Now, did that necessarily make anyone use them? I'm not quite sure, but my guess is that it would help folks to remember it more than a banner ad that they saw that they would never remember again. So yeah, you and I were speakers at, at several different events. Um, that had the attendees were media executives. You want to talk a little bit about about that and and what we did? Yeah, sure. Early on, uh, I think we first launched our sponsored content product in 2013, maybe 2012. And at the time, it was really just taking off. We had the opportunity to be invited to Washington D.C. to the offices of the Atlantic 
where they brought in a lot of really well-known national brands. And here's this small company from Utah there sitting side by side with them because we'd found some success. And so folks like The Atlantic and The Washington Post and The New York Times and several others who were gathered there. And we had the opportunity to share what we had done, but also learn from what some of the others of those have done. So we, we were early in with a product that ended up working well because we had an incredible engaged audience. And that just enabled us to be on the forefront of seeing what worked and what didn't and watching it grow from there. And then that caused us to have the opportunity with the LMA, the local media association, they put together an entire conference around sponsored content, native advertising. Uh, so many of the local media companies who are members of the LMA came and did that. We had that same opportunity with a lot of others, including uh, at the time we were working with uh, Pointer and some of the others that are more think tanks and, and, and less about the operations and more about the study of journalism and so forth. So it was just a great time for us to be able to be doing that because we got to be included with some incredibly well-known brands. Okay, so tell me a little bit about AOL. Go back to the very early days of your career. Um, I, I remember AOL, like AOL was the internet for, for most people, many people. And uh, they, they had a very effective recurring revenue model, which was mm -hmm. a great part of, of your business. Um, they were also known for having horrific customer service. Mm -hmm. um, which, which was part of the destruction of that business model. Um, so I wanna know if you could just tell me a little bit more about AOL and, and your, your ride there with that, the up and down, that meteor, meteoric, however you say that. Yes, that yes, thing. definitely up and down. Uh, so I've always been very interested in technology. I haven't been a developer. I'm not, I'm not smart enough to be that kind of, of, a, of a technical kind of person. But I had, you know, Atari when Atari, when I was a kid and, and Atari had a computer and then Commodore had a computer. And so I played with computers and enjoyed those. And then as I got older, got the opportunity to join AOL. I had the opportunity to be there right at the cusp of when AOL was really taking off. But just before I joined AOL, I spent a couple of years working for Prodigy. We're really the first online service that and CompuServe. Prodigy was a joint venture between Sears and IBM. And when you think about that now, IBM technical, Sears not at all, but that's what it was. And so uh, I was with Prodigy and Prodigy was actually the first online service to have banner ads. That's a little bit of uh, trivia that you can go check out. The very first banner ad was what's now a 728 by 90. It was uh, AT&T. And uh, that's where it all started. Went from there to AOL, had the opportunity to, to work with AOL. And I was there as the- Did you sell that first banner ad that was sold? No, that was not me. No, I, I cannot take credit for that at all. No. <laughs> but I was with AOL as it just took off, uh, to your point, meteorically. Uh, online, it had been bulletin boards before that and online was really taking off and AOL had done a great job of putting the content together and so forth. But the model at the time was based on hourly charges. If you think about that now, and if, if, if a millennial were listening to this, it, they, it wouldn't even compute. You were paying uh, by the hour for being online with a very slow modem that took forever and so forth. Well, it got to the point where there was a lot of groundswell around going to a flat rate per month. And at the time it was 1995 per month. And so AOL went to 1995 per month. 
from hourly charges to 1995. You can imagine what happened. These people who were staying on a lot and spending a lot of money, now they were just going to stay on even longer because they were going to have a flat 20 bucks a month. So let's say you had been spending 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 60 bucks a month. Now you're spending 20 bucks. What's interesting was AOL took off like crazy because it had this engaged audience that could now spend more time. But the problem was that this was in the dial-up days, busy signals. So your modem would dial in, you get the busy signal. Dial in again, busy signal. So much so that this Super Bowl that year, CompuServe, which was at the time a competitor, which then later was acquired by AOL, ran, I believe it was a 60 second commercial, maybe it was only 30, but for the first 28 seconds or the 58 seconds, whichever the length was, it was a black screen with just a busy signal. <laughs> and then it was CompuServe and I, I don't know what it was, you know, we won't be busy or whatever, or something like that. But it was so great to see that because they were just stepping on AOL when AOL was down and uh, 30 some attorneys general of the states sued AOL and so it just went crazy when, with all of that. AOL got through all of that. It was fine. Then the most freakish thing, AOL acquired Time Warner. So you had this old media company that had done an incredible job with old media, with TV, with movies, with so much else, um, even Ted Turner, CNN and so forth. AOL, this new media company comes in, acquires it. And uh, it was during the height of when uh, one of the biggest buzzwords was synergy, right? The synergy, synergy, synergy. I don't remember exactly now because my history, I've, I've lost a little bit, of it, but I, what, four, five, six years later, um, completely divorced from one another, right? The acquisition happened. All of this shareholder wealth got completely flushed and uh, it was a disaster. All right, let's talk about Intermountain Hearing Centers. Uh, you were the CEO there. You want to tell us a little bit about your story there and, and maybe some of the lessons learned and secrets to success there? Yeah, so, so if, uh, if anyone who is watching this knows Nathan Gwilliam well, you'll know that he's a serial entrepreneur. This was really my only foray into entrepreneurship. And the reason why is because it didn't work out very well. Uh, one day, maybe I'll do that again. Um, if my wife watches this, she'll remind me that I told her I would never do that again. So, um, but uh, a good friend of mine and I, who had both been at AOL, decided that we were going to, uh, we were going to leave the corporate world and we we're going to acquire a business. And so the two of us were working with a business broker. We found this company called Intermountain Hearing Centers. It had 22 hearing clinics throughout Utah, Arizona, and Idaho. And we knew that uh, the margins were great, that there is an entire uh, section of the, uh, the population that needs those types of products. So we felt like we could not only do good, but we could have a business that made good money and had good margins and so forth. And so the, the interaction with that in digital Besides the fact it was going from analog to digital hearing aids, uh, I'm not an engineer, so I won't speak to that. But the, the biggest thing that we had at the time was uh, Google was really starting to grow. And there was a huge battle between Google and phone books. If you think about it, the users of hearing aids are typically older. And in that time, where would older folks go to find services, they'd go to their phone book. They'd flip to the back to the yellow pages. They'd find who they wanted and they'd call them. Now you've got this little thing called the internet and you've got this little thing called Google. So locally here, we had, uh, we had Dex, which became uh, CenturyLink. Dex was our local carrier here. And so Dex would have its own directory. So you, they would try to steer you to their own directory or you could just simply go to Google. And so 
we got pretty good, especially my business partner, because he was doing this part. Uh, we got really good at learning how to bid on keywords and how to do exactly what Google is so well known for, which is search marketing. So if someone was searching for hearing aids, we'd be able to hopefully be one of the first couple that had been uh, shown on the search engine results page. Uh, so we got this opportunity to take this business, which was really founded on uh, an analog product with a more analog model and really watch as the product became digital. But then we also tried to make the business model more digital as well. Let's talk a little bit about credibility marketing. When you think back of any examples of businesses that have used credibility marketing really well and or any businesses that have uh, not used it well to their detriment? Well, first one that popped up, um, uh, Allstate, the good hands people, right? You're in good hands with Allstate. To me, that is saying, you should believe in me. You're, we're going to take care of you. Allstate was actually um, a, a Sears brand. It was part of Sears. Um, Dean Witter, all of those were all together. And so to me, that was them saying, okay, we're insurance agents, but we're the good hands people. We're here to take care of you. And even till today, uh, Allstate is still around uh, and there have been others who have come and gone. That's a good one. Um, anyone that uh, projects themselves as experts. Um, the next one that pops into my mind is, is Home Depot, right? For, for doers, right? I go to Home Depot down there every Saturday because I'm working on a project. We're here for you because we understand what you're building and so forth. That doesn't necessarily work if I'm targeting someone who's not a builder but if, you, if I know my uh, demographic well, and I know that it's these DIY folks who are gonna come there, then I'm gonna go that route. Uh, anybody who's gonna position themselves uh, as experts. You could go the other side and go to anything like uh, German auto manufacturing. So Mercedes, BMW, Audi, who are all about the, the greatest driving experience and so forth. That's the credibility of, we build an incredibly beautiful machine that also will drive you into the back of your seat. Yeah, it costs a lot of money, but quality costs and so forth. So for me, that is credibility on the, the aesthetic. It's also credibility on the build and the reputation and so forth. So for me, it, it can be services, it can be products, it can be hard products, it can be soft products. If you think about it, um, I'm not sure that I would say that Walmart or Target are necessarily built on credibility so much they're built on low price they're built on uh selection and so forth doesn't mean not credible doesn't mean that they don't put out good product it's just that they've chosen their specific niche what is the best home run you've hit in your career what can you looking back on the the biggest success you've had in your career well the reason that's hard is because is it measured by did it make me grow is it measured by did it sell the most uh i don't know um one of the one of the biggest home runs of my career and, and it wasn't just me there was a lot of people but was building out brandview which was our native advertising product at desert digital media working at desert digital media was a home run for me the yeah. six years that i was there it was the same way phenomenal working with incredible people. And we had a string of incredible uh, hits, but this was one Amazing leader in Clark Gilbert who, who facilitated all of it. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I could definitely say working at Desert Digital Media and, and, and building out the, uh, the sponsored content product, but um, I've also had the opportunity uh, two different times in my career to work at uh, the same company twice. Uh, two different times I worked at a company in Northern Utah here called MarketStar. And I had the great opportunity both of the times that I was there to work with our business development folks. I was on the operations side to win contracts with some incredible names. So the, the most recent stint that I was there, we got the opportunity to work with eBay and Workplace by Facebook and Waze and uh, Asana and AdRoll and the list goes on and on. And in my earlier stint there, when it was less technology, internet technology, we got to work with folks like uh, Motorola and Whirlpool and Verizon and Sony, Web TV, the, the list goes on and on. So I've had the opportunity to be involved in winning and then servicing some incredibly blue chip clients. I've had the opportunity to build products like uh, Brandview and, and other products I've had the opportunity to, to, to do. But I think probably the biggest win for me has been, I feel like every company that I've joined, I've walked away with incredible growth for myself personally, that I've, as I've gone from one to the next, hopefully I've become more mature, more uh, knowledgeable, more insightful and so forth. And, and I hope that that continues through the rest of my career until I no longer move to another place that I continue to learn and to grow and to understand. To me, that's probably the biggest home run, but if you want to talk about the others, there's a couple others as well. Yeah. Can you think of some specific examples in companies you've worked for where uh, ARR, MRR was implemented and, and made a big difference? So I had the opportunity to build this inside sales team. We had outside sellers that were all these uh, traditional media sellers, but we built this inside sales team. And one of the things early on that I coached them on was you don't say to the advertiser, that's $500. You say that's $500 monthly. It doesn't, it's still the same thing. And if they want to cancel, we're going to allow them to cancel. But that small, subtle change goes from a one-time purchase to an ongoing transaction. And so when I say, hey, Nathan, so that ad unit that you're looking at there, it's going to be $500 monthly. And here's what we're taking a look at. That was the first part. But then the second part was working with our CFO to enable us to set these up on credit cards so we could bill once and every month instead of having to call like Verizon or someone else. In the media industry prior, um, and, and maybe someone else had figured it out, certainly won't take credit for that, but what often happened was when the camp campaign ended, then you went back out, you talked about the campaign, and you tried to book another one. In this case, we just simply said, here's what it looks like. And we would say to them, listen, if you wanna cancel, you just need to cancel before the, the billing date. But we worked with them to work on the, the performance of their campaign, but we didn't ever call them to ask them if we could charge them again, because we told them it was a monthly cost. And that built out this ARR that uh, DDM was built on a lot of different revenue streams, but that was one revenue stream that we could count on. And each year it got bigger and bigger and bigger because we built on an MRR that became an ARR really. Thank you so much, Todd, for sharing your stories and knowledge with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, native advertising may be a great way to solve the mounting problems with ad blockers and banner blindness. Number two, consider using native advertising to provide value first before trying to sell. Number three, native advertising 
can help build a sponsor's brand and credibility. Number four, as CompuServe did with their ad, we can take advantage of the situation around our businesses and niches and turn it into something unexpected and entertaining to help promote our products and services. Number five, when tectonic shifts happen, we must shift our businesses to match those tectonic shifts and leverage them. Number six, consider which focus will help our businesses best succeed, low prices, or focusing on providing the top quality products and services to our target market. We often cannot have both. Number seven, we can establish our revenue models to be immediately recurring with a few simple words to our customers. If you enjoyed this interview and want to connect with Todd or his company, you can find him on LinkedIn and there's a link to that in the blog post for this episode. Did you like today's episode? Then please follow these channels to receive free digital monetization content. Number one, get a free monetization assessment of your business at monetizationnation.com forward slash assessment. Number two, please subscribe to the free monetization e-magazine at monetizationnation.com forward slash e-magazine. Number three, subscribe to the Monetization Nation YouTube channel or subscribe to the Monetization Nation podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And number five, please follow Monetization Nation on Instagram and Twitter. What problems have you seen with advertising banners? And what success have you seen with native advertising? Please join our private Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Thanks for joining us today for this episode. I hope you have a fabulous day. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.